Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome to another episode of Around the Coin. Today, I interviewed Gershi Vaughn, who is the CEO of Magma Capital Funds, or Magma, as I called it in the episode. Gershi and I had a really interesting conversation about how the economy is structured. Uh, Gershi has a slightly different viewpoint uh, than me on a lot of things, and we really dove into the details and talked philosophically about Magma, but really about the economy at large, the state of the government in the U.S., the governments abroad, the implications of finance and the macroeconomic trends. Really enjoyed the conversation with Gershi. He really is a sophisticated and deep thinker, which is a credit to their success at Magma Capital. So I hope you enjoy this show. And as always, this show is sponsored by Otter Labs. At HireOtter.com, you can find developers. There's a community of over a 1,000 developers to plug into existing permanent engineering teams at fast-growing startups. So if you're working at a startup or working in engineering anywhere and want to hire people based on U.S. time zones, Argentina and South America is a great option. So check out Hire Otter for that. And I hope you enjoy the show. Here is Gershi Vaughn. All right. So we are live. Uh, Gershi Vaughn. Did I pronounce? Is it Vaughn? Van. 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 Uh, CEO of Magma Capital Funds. Before we dive into anything detailed about the business or you, uh, I'd love to learn what, what specific problem are you trying to solve or address when you started the company and we'll we'll go from there it's a great way to look at things like through the perspective of what consumer problem you're trying to solve i think that there's a very large shift going on inside of the active traded um financial space so you have like your conventional passive trading where you put money into an account it follows some predetermined philosophy and it just kind of sits there and grows over time And then you have active traders who believe they can achieve some risk-adjusted edge, um, you know, by following some trading pattern based on some system. And I think historically, it was um, common to have a discretionary type approach where you would just, people would do what they thought in their gut would happen that day. And and a lot of that was due to like limited information available. Um, And, but we're trying to capitalize on this trend away from discretionary trading towards systematic trading, um, and even beyond basic systematic trading, more towards machine learning, where you can synthesize and take in an enormous amount more information than you would have been able to um, under a discretionary or traditional systematic structure. And why why would the discretionary or traditional structure not use as much data? So is it the data piece that makes it unique, the, the technology to use enough data to make decisions? Well, I I think humans are like inherently limited in how I'm not anti-human, but I think humans are inherently limited in like how much um, information they can take in and process and wait systematically. There's this anecdote that I like to point out that uh, phone numbers when they were originally put out there had seven digits separate of the area code. And even within those seven digits, you usually have a dash. And the reason there were seven digits is because the human mind can't memorize more than seven digits. Um, And so if you think about that, and then you try to consider a human trader who's trying to synthesize, let's say, 50,000 relevant data points, it's unlikely that they can do that 
and make a, an unbiased decision. Like there's, um, there, there was a fantastic book called thinking fast and slow, um, about the heuristics and the biases that we use to kind of make decisions very quickly. Um, where what we do is we form like fairly simplistic mental maps to say like, oh, this is the solution to this problem. And as a result, we make less precise decisions. So I think in an age of limited information, that was an okay way to trade. Mm. Uh, and I think now as our tools have expanded, um, there's this move to take advantage of that because I think ultimately this is a better solution. Mm. Do you think the people who do uh, individual trades without any sophisticated AI, that they're they're playing a slightly different game where they're trying to internalize the human component of what's going on in the market, you know, the, the externalities that data is not, um, accessible to, is that, is that, a, is that even a worthy way of looking at it or is that just kind of hocus pocus? Um, I mean, I think you can make a case that during times of market stress, a human would have a better ability to understand like what's, what narratives are driving what's happening in the market because we're, we're humans. And so we mm-hmm. understand narrative and narrative drives a lot of things. Um, but I mean, you can train a machine learning model to start trading around narrative driven mm. market activity. And I think a lot of people are still doing that because that's how it's always been done. Yeah. Um, but there's only a certain amount of time that you can keep going within that frame of mind before, like at the end of the day, if you have a classic discretionary trader and they're producing 800 basis points of returns, 8% per year, and then there's a systematic trader is producing 1200 basis points a year, 12%. How long are you going to continue to allocate to the discretionary trader? I, I think over the coming 10 years, there's going to be a very, very large exodus out of discretionary tra- trading strategies. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Um, and, and paint the landscape a little bit for how you, and how you guys fit in. You, you started this company only a few years ago. Um, what were you doing or what did you see from say a 50,000 foot level that said, I have to go and start my own company and then catch us up to where you guys are specifically. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I've always loved systems and kind of understanding how people fit within systems. Um, I, I think the idea that we as humans can invent like incentive structures and those incentive structures can guide human behavior and thus make behavior predictable is like a fascinating phenomenon. And I think that manifests in macroeconomics in a really strong way. Um, this idea that you can raise the cost of borrowing and naturally people will borrow less and you can lower the cost of borrowing and people will borrow more. And and all the while, no one is aware of that whole system. I've always found just absolutely fascinating. Uh, and I wanted to build a model, you know, a financial, a, a trading system that was built around that because if you build around macroeconomic principles, you don't, you're not subject to specific trends of the market. You can kind of make money in every trend. So in states of low, and and that's what got me to focus on volatility because in states of low volatility, there's a certain way that you should trade in states of high volatility. There's an alternative way that you should trade. Um, and so that, that's really what kicked off this thesis. Um, and once I finished it, which was like around the beginning of 2020, I raised some seed capital to build the organization, really get it off the ground. Um, I think there, whenever you try to build a company, um, there's an enormous amount of work that's necessary to be done that exists completely external of the product. Mm. And so really having that seed capital, that ability to build that infrastructure was super important. Um, and so we launched in March of 2020, right before COVID, uh, we started, and so we spent around six months trying to build out the, the product, build out the fund, um, you know, and hire all the external partners that you need, banking, legal, et cetera. And then um, we started trading in the middle of September. Uh, we launched our second fund at the beginning of March of 2021. Um, we have around five million in asset center management, and we have around 35 investors. And wh- why are they different funds? So we talked a little bit pre-show, but uh, I would think generally it's people can invest in you guys, and then you take their money and choose where to put it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> are they structured in different buckets or different funds? For a so reason, the, what's the strategy? Yeah, so so the different funds they do follow different strategies, um, but I see it more as an ability to to access multiple markets without 
the increased cost that you would get from launching your first fund. So, you know, you launch your first fund and now you have access to a specific market segment. Um, in the case of Magma, the, you know, the first fund that Magma launched, we were targeting initially high net worth investors, individuals, and now we're moving into like the family office space um, and the broader institutional space. Um, and that's great. Mm. But let's say your product takes off slowly in the institutional space. Can you potentially open up another product that's geared towards a different audience that can take off simultaneously without the same cost base as the first product because it can feed on the existing resources? Um, and so we launched a fund geared towards professional athletes. Mm. And now we're in the process of launching our third fund, which is geared towards investors that want a much lower return on, let's say, 5% per year kind of like what you would have received in say 2005 or so off of a treasury with a similar volatility profile to what a treasury delivers. Just they don't want that 1% return that a treasury delivers now. So I think this is a really brilliant time to be in the hedge fund space because there is a need for, as interest rates have gone to zero and the returns of fixed income have started approaching zero, there is an enormous amount of room for innovation and for fund managers that are going to bring different ideas to the table. And so I guess to directly answer your question, you know, the reason you, you open up multiple products is because that increases your probability of success with a lower cost base per unit of success. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, interesting. Interesting. So uh, I want to get a better understanding of this just for my own, my own sake. So do you know the numbers of how many traders there are or hedge funds or, or are there are there general numbers that you default to to understand the size of the landscape, the num- number of people who are making investment decisions or just the money that's floating around in the, in the, in the general market pool? Yeah. So it's kind of paradoxical to say, don't quote me on this on a podcast, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> but I think it's roughly, there's roughly 13,000 hedge fund managers across the US and the UK. Um, and they're running about $4.3 trillion. Um, and it follows like a classical distribution where, you know, the majority of the capital is run by a fairly small uh, concentration of the managers. Um, but that's broadly the size of the industry. And is the concentration of the, the managers who have the most leverage, are they getting the best returns or, ha- or how is that? How would you say if there's, if there's a way to access this information, but how would you say the returns are distributed? So the hedge fund industry is not, I think from the outside, the typical approach would be, well, whoever has the best funds is the best returns right. is the best fund. Um, but, but hedge funds really serve a different purpose for different investors. There are hedge funds that target very high returns. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you quickly become aware of is most hedge funds are targeting a high risk adjusted return. Um, what in the industry is called the sharp ratio. Mm-hmm. And the sharp ratio is basically just your return per unit of volatility. Cause le- basically let's say you could double your returns, but you also doubled your volatility, your return per unit of volatility or unit of risk has remained equal. So if you have a fund that has doubled the volatility, instead of producing 10% it produced 20%, well, you haven't really accomplished anything for your investor. Um, b- because from their perspective, you would have lost double the amount. So, you know, it goes both yeah. ways. Yeah. Um, and, and so there's this focus on producing, let's say, funds that are beta neutral. In other words, they produce returns irrespective of what the market is returning. Or funds that um, are more income funds, where they want to generate a very, very consistent type of return. Um, you, you can think of it from the perspective of if there's most of the money in the markets is institutional investors. Again, don't quote me on this, but mm-hmm. I think this is the case. The largest allocators are pension funds, endowments, you know, yeah. that type of group of people. And they use hedge funds as ways to um, find vehicles that can um, serve to offset or s- be uncorrelated to the returns of the existing vehicles that they have. So, for example, if they're making investments in real estate, can they find another asset that's uncorrelated to those returns. If they're investing in the S&P 500, can mm. they find another asset that's uncorrelated with those returns? And the same with private credit, with if they're going to invest in timber, if they're going to invest in forests or wine or art or anything like that. And what ends up happening is in aggregate, you end up with a portfolio that's a lot more stable because when one asset sinks, it is not necessarily the case that you know another asset will sink. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is that the, it is not necessarily the case that the largest hedge funds produce 
the highest returns because that is not necessarily what the market is looking for. Yeah. Often the largest allocators are looking to the largest funds to produce very high risk adjusted returns, but their actual annual returns may be something like eight or 9%. Yeah. The right, yeah. The highest returns wouldn't, wouldn't be where the most money is funneled because of the, mm-hmm. the risk is going to be higher naturally. So I imagine if you, if you were to break out the 14,000 hedge funds, there would be some that had tremendous returns, but they had high risk. And so that's not really a fit for a large amount of capital for like a pension fund or something. Uh, I have to believe like your, your thesis here is it's hard to deny that just more data accessed, the more you have access to data, the more you can make better decisions. What, what's the tip of the spear now? Like where, where are you seeing the data that you now have access to that wasn't available two years ago or five years ago? Is it like satellite data or <laughs> scraping Twitter data or metadata coming from like, wh- where, where are the pipes, uh, you know, where's the like pots of gold that people are kind of chasing after? Yeah. I, th- I think what's really unique about like this time period is um, beyond just data, you, you need actionable information. And in order to get actionable information, you need an enormous amount of like data streams. And I think previously you were able to access alternative data, but you might only get a few streams of alternative data. And so like, let's say you wanted to gauge the sentiment of market participants. Maybe you would do that through aggregating news feeds. Um, Well, maybe you didn't have the capacity to aggregate so many news feeds in real time. Um, I think what's different about now is there's such an enormous amount of data pouring out of so many sources. Like there's this line that, you know, data is the new oil. Um, Mm -hmm. And the entire economy is just going to run on this new form of of information. Um, And I, I think the tip of the spear is definitely there. I think the most like excess returns that people are going to generate are going to be a product of getting to information that previously was inaccessible in a quicker way. Um, And in so doing the markets will become more and more efficient. And what are those? I mean, is that, is it satellites or is it like, what are they? um, I think this would be another example of where it really depends on what you're trading. Like let's say someone is trading around an earnings season. And maybe they've been tracking the amount of parked cars in a Walmart. This is not something mm-hmm. that we do. We trade the indexes. Um, and, and through that, they're going to, or, or maybe they have some way to track the amount of foot, foot traffic in a specific store. And they're going to aggregate that and then make some forecast about what a company's uh, you know, revenue lines are going to look mm-hmm. like. That could be one way of doing so. Um, you know, another way would be aggregating news feeds. Um, there, there is some satellite data that I think people have used to kind of figure out um, cases in which factories are a fraud um, or otherwise. I think, you know, often their narrative is driven by, oh, like, wouldn't that be cool if we could use satellite data? And then that becomes like what everyone talks about, you know, but it isn't necessarily so useful. Um, I think that we're going to find that as we're able to harness more and more data, it will get more and more effective at telling us what we're trying to figure out. Yeah, yeah. Because really, when when you say data is the new oil, what are we really saying? We're saying that understanding ourselves on a societal level is the new oil. And effectively, what you're able to use, like what is the data, what is it an analogy for? And I think it's, um, I think it's the understanding of where attention is going. So data is, hmm. is useful for, because think about the economy is largely driven and will increasingly be driven on attention. You know, it's where mm-hmm. wherever eyeballs are at, whether it's websites mm-hmm. or mobile apps or people on social media, the more eyeballs, the more time and attention you have, um, the more you're relevant. And increasingly so, people can monetize that, where traditionally it's been difficult to and it's been centralized around, you know, mm-hmm. BC, NBC, like large publications. Mm-hmm. Now it's kind of a, it's like a free-for-all for attention. So I think uh, attention is the one limiting factor that each of us have a finite amount of every day, it's mm-hmm. like you, you, you're given an allowance of, you know, 16 hours of attention every day. And mm-hmm. so the data is like, where is that attention distributed? Because where mm-hmm. it's distributed is where people are going to spend money. And, and I think of the, the da- when we say the data, we're trying mm-hmm. to know if you take all 8 billion people or say 4 billion people that are online, <clears throat> if you take that, how is it distributed across the different, places they spend their time, their, their attention. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, because that will, that will tell you 
so much, right? I mean, it, it just mm-hmm. theoretically, if you had, if you had access, if you had the, the, the holy grail of data, which would be mm-hmm. where are people, where is every person on the planet spending their attention at every given point, you mm-hmm. could make predictable decisions about pretty much everything they would do in their life, every mm-hmm. buying decision, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. person they would date or car they would buy. And I think that's, uh, it, that, that's a stretch to actually imagine it, but that's kind of like the, um, the, the pinnacle point of where, where it, it would be going. Like, because isn't that what trading is about? It's about trying to determine what's going to be more valuable tomorrow than it is today. Like where mm-hmm. the trend is. I, I'm curious if any of this is making sense to you. I'm kind of, uh, yeah, I think, <laughs> I think it does. Um, I, I think when I think of this statement, data is the new oil, I think of what is the most, valuable commodity without which the economy cannot run. Um, and and I, th- I think this echoes a lot of what you're saying that, you know, in, in the past, oil was this commodity where if you don't have it, you cannot run your factories, you can't, you can't do anything. And, and so the whole economy shuts down and you have like, you know, 1960s type inflationary crises and we have to intervene in the Middle East and yeah, it becomes a really big problem. Um, and I think now it's, it's just really transforming where every decision made by every business will be based on an enormous amount of data. And and like you're saying, as that data gets more and more granular, our ability to predict patterns of behavior will just soar. Um, I I think it is true to your last point that markets are fundamentally pricing machines. They're taking in information and they're pricing assets as as that information dictates it should be priced. Um, and so the quicker and more substantive you can make information flow, the more accurately assets will be priced. And, um, okay. So let's take that on board. So if, if assets are mispriced, that's an arbitrage opportunity. And then, mm-hmm. th- then a trader could come in and trade, but assuming, mm-hmm. assuming the end state, all, all the assets are perfect. So imagine you take those 14,000 hedge funds and we, mm-hmm. we just transform them into one super AI that has access mm-hmm. to every piece of data on the planet. Mm-hmm. At that point, every, the price for every, everything. I mean, even when we say everything, like what's the limit of the things that we're talking about? Like where, where can you, let's maybe we'll just start with you and, and Magma. What are the limits to where you can distribute funds and take advantage of this arbitrage through having access to data? Well, so at the moment, we only trade the S&P, the Dow, the NASDAQ, and then along the treasury yield curve. So short-term, intermediate, and long-term treasuries. So um, in any instance, when we believed the price of one would rise, that would be what we would allocate to. Although, like, one thing I would say is it, it's based on an optimization of past behavior. So it's not nece- we're not necessarily making predictions about what this asset will do today. It's more we're saying this is the environment we believe the market is in today, and this is the allocation that's optimal for that environment. Um, but I think if, if, if I'm following your train of thought correctly, what you're saying is, is there an endpoint at which everything is priced perfectly and at which market activity to some extent kind of ceases? I, well, I think of it as like, as, as pricing becomes more efficient, uh, mm-hmm. there's less of an opportunity for traders, individual traders. Mm-hmm. It becomes more centralized because it becomes more of mm-hmm. a commodity. It's like the marketplace becomes more transparent. And so mm-hmm. there's not as much uh, inefficiency or opportunity for people to come in mm-hmm. independently and, and uh, provide value by increasing the efficiency of those prices. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, think, I think the next phase is that, bam, there's a new market. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm. there's incredible inefficiencies. And I think that that's largely the world of crypto. I think it's mm-hmm. the, the world of um, NFTs or it's the world of, you know, in the future, maybe VR or even things mm-hmm. like how do you price externalities of uh, uh, driverless cars and mm-hmm. uh, uh, transportation flow? Like that's a whole market in and of itself that we haven't even opened up yet. Um, it, w- it seems to me that, and tell me if you disagree with that, this, that the Dow, the, the NASDAQ, the top you know, a thousand companies traded, everyone has access to the same information. You know, maybe there's some slight difference with how fast the information comes and some traders specialize in ultra low latency, mm-hmm. uh, low latency, high latency um, trading. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, everyone has access to the same information. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that, that kind of compresses any differential returns. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, I, I don't know if you if that if you'd go somewhere with that or what your reaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a really good point. Um, one thing though is the amount of information is just enormous, and the the ways that you can trade on that are so varied. Um, so, I mean, like let's just imagine that there are going to be a couple billion, you know, Internet of Thing things devices that are going to be attached to mm. every conceivable appliance. So now the the I mean let's let's just imagine that it, every Gatorade bottle in the world sent a signal to some central hub or some data source that it was being drunk and the rate at which it was being drunk. Um well now like you know the the possibilities for trading become more and more and more finite. Um that also means that the market becomes more and more stable and so now the capacity of the market to grow, to attract more capital rises, its ability to have a, a, a larger amount of leverage rises. And, and also, I, I think we've only kind of scratched the surface with public assets. Like even let's say real estate, if you want to get exposure to real estate, you're going to get exposure through, you know, some sort of REIT that owns like a bunch of like sub properties. But I think there's a world in which every asset with some value could be a publicly traded liquid asset. Mm. Um, I, I mean, like public equities are quite valuable. I, I don't know what the S&P is worth now, something like 40 to $45 trillion. Um, but there's an enormous amount of other US and then international assets that currently aren't liquid. And you have to have quite an infrastructure just to access those assets. Um, so crypto is kind of this like mm. um, area that's just burst onto the scene recently. But even amongst like hard assets and cash producing assets, we can I would imagine over the next hundred or so years, we're going to liquefy every asset. There, there's no reason why an enormous amount of assets right now can only be accessed through the private space. Like through, you can only get access to, let's say, buying certain real estate if you don't want to directly buy it by accessing some fund. But I don't know that things have to stay like that. I, I think, like I'm in Willis Tower right now, I think Willis Tower could become its own equity and it throws off a certain amount of um, of income in the form of a dividend of sorts. Um, and it gets publicly traded and people buy and sell it based on whether they think it's going to rise or fall in value. And now you have downtowns all over the entire world where every substantial asset becomes liquid. Um, you know, and then, then farmland becomes an asset that can be held in a liquid, um, sort of vehicle. Uh, so I, th I think we're very, very far away from this like perfectly efficient frontier. And then, and then the last point I think is that there are currents that drive the pricing of assets external of just what is optimal, what is the optimal pricing for that asset. So, I mean, fear is like a great example. When people are scared, they pull their money out of assets and that causes a mispricing of assets. So even if you have the ultimate AI, there's still a limited, like you can still have instances where that, um, where you will have a, a, a structural dislocation in the pricing of the market that will allow an opportunity for profit. Mm, yeah. Great points. Uh, going on your first point, <clears throat> uh, do you, what stands in the way between society becoming rapidly progressing down this road of uh, liquidizing, not liquidizing liquid. It's not even liquidating. It's, it's, uh, um, it was that what it would you call like, say the building I'm right sure. now is, is, is owned by probably a handful of people and it's probably mm -hmm. owned by, you know, some LLC, but, but they, do they have the regulatory capability today to just throw it on a market? And are we at a, is there a technological barrier or is it a regulatory barrier? I, I'm skeptical a lot of real estate because I feel that it's entrenched in regulatory. It just has barnacles all over it that just prevent. <laughs> prevent people from being creative on, on real estate. And I think that's what drives a lot of the, the high prices in some cities and the, the low turnover and, and kind of present it's, it's almost like if you imagine your, your body, it just has, it's, it's built up clogs in the arteries and it just, mm -hmm. we have a far from fluid system. And mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly a proponent of reducing the amount of regulation in, in real estate uh, but I'm wondering if that's if that's real if I'm looking at that correctly is that really what prevents pro progress in this direction or do you see it another way? I mean I can't speak on this with like any authority. You know this is something that yeah, in the back yeah. of my mind I'd love to at some point I'd love to participate in the creation of this. And I'm sure there are plenty of entrepreneurs that are working towards this. But 
ultimately, if something is profitable and if it's in the best interest of people, it will be done. Yeah. Um, and so I, I do think at some point real estate will become a liquid asset. Um, I think infrastructure is the next, you know, the next big opportunity. The thing is like, as we age, we're, we're an incredibly wealthy society. And as we age, there's more and more, there's more and more capital that accumulates that needs to be put to work in assets. Um, and, and I don't, I don't think we've done a very good job at like generating more assets that can throw off capital. And, and that's not great for, uh, pensioners. Mm. Um, and, and we're gonna have to get used to a reality where there's hundreds of millions, if not billions of people around the world that are over 65 that need income. Um, and so it, it seems to me to be an obvious solution. Did you, are you, are you implying that the people over 65, haven't saved enough money in their life that they've sort of mismanaged their finances throughout their life and they don't have enough to live through the remaining retired years that they have? No, not at all. I mean that if, let's say there were assets that used to produce returns of 4%. Uh And so essentially you would need to save, let's say you needed a million dollars a year to live your life. That's a high number. Let's say you needed a hundred thousand dollars a year to live your life you would need a quantity of assets where that 4% would throw off $100,000 a year. So you would just need 25 times whatever, the, your principal would have to be 25 times that 100,000, so two and a half million. Um, but if everybody starts piling into those 4% assets, and now as a result, the price of that asset itself rises such that the return is only 1%, well, now you need 100 times. Mm. That's not because... That, that's because there's not enough assets, not, not mm. because there's anything like, not because there's anything that anyone is doing wrong. Yeah. Um, like I think to throw this back on, on pensioners and say, well, you didn't save enough because now you need to save a hundred times um, your principal instead of like 40 times or 25 times. I, I think that's just us not being creative enough. Yeah. 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 Another way to say this, right. Would be that the, the return on the investments the reasonable accessible investments are lower going forward. So would that be to say, so another way too to internalize this is uh, people are producing less productive companies than they once were. And I'm not sure that that's the case. I think it's just that the scale, the, so let's imagine that the world starts off with a million dollars and that, and there's only one asset and that asset throws off, I don't know, $100,000 a year. And then the next year, the world has $2 million, but there's still only one asset that throws off $100,000 a year. That asset, since it's the only thing that can be purchased, will just double in price. So the Mm -hmm. solution is not to ask everyone to save more to deal with that rising asset price. It's to introduce more assets. Um, And right now, the assets exist. They just are basically only accessible to certain groups of investors because you need a whole operation to get access to a lot of these investments. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think a world where you could gain exposure to real estate by buying individual properties and you could gain exposure to real estate, like fractional shares of individual properties. Mm -hmm. Um, and you could gain exposure to, I don't know, litigation, finance, music, art, wine, et cetera. Um, I I think that would be a much cooler world. I I think you'd have many more uncorrelated asset classes. I think, um, we would be better able to absorb the increase in capital that will inevitably come with future growth. Yeah. 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 And also incentivizes people in each of those areas, whether they're developers in real estate or music musicians or artists to make more things, make more valuable things because it's, there's much more liquid market accessible. If I could go and make a song and bam, I can immediately sell ownership rights to 3000 people. And they, Mm -hmm. you know, in the market is just worked out electronically Mm -hmm. automatically that's way more exciting, right? Because now you can have more musicians and more artists and more developers doing things. It's, it's, it's in a way, I think of it as like being stuck when you only have a limited number of participants in the market Mm -hmm. out of your total potential market size. It's like, yeah, you you know, you sit down and you have probably more than the average person or maybe even just as much as the average person in terms of the options you could invest your money. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, I, I find that one totally ironic rule that the government put in place was the rule of the accredited investor. So you have mm-hmm. to have, in order to invest in startups, <clears throat> in companies, what's the rule? It's like in order to make private investments into 
uh, private companies, you have to have greater than 200,000 in annualized income or a million in net worth. And mm-hmm. for most people that are, you know, in their teens and twenties that want to make these investments and take on high risk investments, they can't do it because they don't qualify. And it, yeah. it, it precisely does the counter to what it's intended to do, which is to protect people from making bad investments, uh, which I, it, it, that never rings logic logically to me. It's like, how, what are we doing? We're saying that the government has the ability and right to say what you are qualified to, to do in terms of make your, I mean, if you want to spend all your money on a startup and like, why, why is that wrong? I, I just don't understand a lot of the methodology deployed. Well, I think the counter to your point is that ultimately if an individual goes bust, they run out of capital, they run out of money they fall on the state. And so the state could make the case that if you don't have a certain amount of money, such that if you made a bad investment, you would then go broke, um, we're going to limit the amount of upside that you can have. And, and we'll also limit the amount of downside. Um, it, you know, it's, it's tough because like, if you, you're right, a lot of the opportunity in the investment world exists in the private placement sphere. And in order to be part of a private placement in order to buy into it, you have to be an accredited investor. Um, and, and that strikes a lot of people as unfair. And, and I get that. And it's also annoying when you're raising capital because now, you know, the, the, the quantity of people that you can raise capital, it's, it's only like 10% of America. Um, so, so that's a frustrating component. But then on the other hand, I mean, if, if there is someone who's very wealthy, let's say they're worth $10 million and they lose $200,000 in some investment, maybe they'll be frustrated, but it's not the end of their, Mm. of their life. Um, if someone makes an, an ill-informed decision to invest in a, in, in some product and they took their entire life savings, which amounted to $75,000, the public uproar is substantially larger. Yeah. yeah, you're right. I mean, ultimately the government is, has a, has a financial relationship with each person. And so if you run out of money, you can go to the government and they will, you know, you can declare bankruptcy and write off debt that you have. So yeah, I mean, I, I understand. I get it. I understand it. I don't love it, but I, I get it. <laughs> it's really tricky. I, I think I think there was an attempt to like, you know, um, to modify the rules somewhat by allowing, you know, certain people who weren't accredited investors to invest in crowdfunding startups. Um, and I know there's a lot of companies that are doing some work in the space. Um, it's very tough though because like. W- I think humans instinctively like root for the underdog and in any relationship, if, if someone is like, let's say monetarily disadvantaged, they're, they're going to be the underdog. And so do you want to put people in a position where they could, a lot of private placement ventures do go under and Mm. are you, do you want to put people in a position where there's almost definitely going to be a certain amount of people that will go under? Um, and I mean, you could see they're like classic newspaper type headers, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. retiree and nursing home loses X number of dollars to, yeah. Um, yeah. it doesn't make for great optics. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Well, what are the, like, what are the kinds of things you, you think about when you run magma on a day to day? Like what was your morning like today or yesterday? I mean, what are, what are typical, um, you, when you're operating at your peak performance, what are you doing? Um, it's a really good question. So I think it's some mix of, I, I, I really believe in building a company where everyone's doing the thing that they're best at. Um, and so like, I'm pretty good at ideating, if I may say so myself, you know, coming up with new ideas, getting around problems and that type of thing. And so I love the meetings where, um, you know, we can discuss walls that we're running into and ways to get around them. Um, and I'm terrible at operations. And so other people within the team handle those types of things. Um, I enjoy business development. I enjoy meeting with clients. Um, it, it really depends on the day. You know, some days, every day has a different kind of set of meetings and has a different set of goals. Um, I, I think probably like most CEOs, there's no fixed role. You know, you you kind of need to be whatever the company needs you to be at that moment. Um, and if that means that you need to source talent, then that's what you do. You source talent. And if that means that you need to raise capital, you raise capital. And, um, you know, you're always kind of pivoting to whatever the situation demands of you. So I guess peak performance and like flow state comes when I can do that 
effortlessly. Um, and that's when it's a lot of fun. Otherwise, it's a little exhausting. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me ask you, that's a good answer. Let me ask you slightly differently. Like what, when, if the, if you think of it instead of you, uh, but you think of Magma as the company, when, when Magma is, um, uh, operating in its most unique and differentiated way, how, mm-hmm. how is it, uh, how does it, how does it stand out? How does it, um, you know, what's the thing that you want to carve out and say, we want to be the best at this specific function or vision. Got it. Um, I think there's, so there's a huge emphasis that we, that we push on collaboration and on iterating relentlessly. Um, cause you're, you're never going to reach perfection, but it's far more likely that you're going to get there if you're always learning from your mistakes and kind of building on that. I think there's this misconception that the best way to generate outsized returns or to build an incredible product is to find someone who's a genius and to put that person alone in a room and say like, here, you figure it out. I actually think that's a terrible way to come up with really good ideas. I think we mythologize um, individual genius. And I think it's like unbelievably rare. Mm. Uh, I think for the most part, if you want to get to something that resembles brilliance, you need a team um, because collective intelligence is just a lot smarter and, and um, broader than like narrow intelligence. Uh, like a single person. So I I would say that's what helps us stand out. I think a lot of hedge funds have a little bit of like a silo mentality where it's like, you do this, you do this, you do this. And and there's no talking between the different departments. Um, For one, I I think that like crushes the human spirit. Mm. People thrive on talking and like working through their problems. Um, And I, we've embraced the exact opposite approach where, you know, every meeting is every meeting that involves ideation that isn't, let's say um, that isn't private, mm-hmm. then you know, you're, you're welcome to it. You want to come in and you want to participate in some way or another, by all means, please mm-hmm. do so. Um, yeah. And I think that uh, it's kind of, it's a little bit Socratic, you know, where like you put forward something, you get challenged on it, you innovate on that. I, I think that's where we've allowed, we've, we've been able to accelerate our innovation cycle beyond what would be the case normally. Mm. So, so specifically, just so I understand when you are thinking about distributing a portfolio in a fund, is it a combination of, I mean, I would imagine it works something like this, but tell me, tell me how it actually works. You have a team of researchers, they go and they get a bunch of information and a bunch of data. Maybe they draw up a a thesis or some overarching ideas in different sectors about where they think opportunity is or, or won't be. And then you have a team meeting, you discuss it you try to, you know, throw devil's advocates and try to pump it up or knock it down and come up to a more sophisticated viewpoint on things. And then you say, okay, let's throw in, you know, you take some combination of quantitative and qualitative analysis and say, let's put in X percentage of our portfolio in this area. And then, and then that's how it works. Is, is that, am I, close on that i, I really <laughs> I don't know a lot about this world so i'm just trying I to think, learn. No, no, i think it's an admirable uh stab i think that you start with the most important thing in any machine learning model are the features so how do we and features are essentially um data points that are predictive for whatever it is that you're trying to predict maybe you're trying to predict um what percentage point will the s p move tomorrow so you now want to go and find features predictive factors um, over some time period, maybe it's a day, maybe it's a certain volume block, a certain dollar block, et cetera. And so now you have to be really creative in how you test for that. You need to build the infrastructure for it. And, um, and you need to think both quantitatively and qualitatively, where am I likely to find that information? Is it in, um, you know, is it through natural language processing in, um, I'm blanking on the word in, in how in sentiment data, Mm. or is it going to be in volume or pricing data? And then, you know, you test for that and then you say, okay, well, if we're, if you're having trouble finding that, do we approach this problem some other way? If you then complete building a model, do you stop there or do you build multiple models that are uncorrelated with one another such that the mistakes of a single model are not necessarily, um, mistakes made across the board because the other model could have made a different decision. Um, you know, then you might, innovate from there and say, okay, well, um, we may now just be going long and short or optimal bet. Do we want to 
switch things up and introduce some other variable that would allow us to reduce our movements relative to the market. Um, so the it's more of this like endless attempt to get towards where you're trying to go. How do you continue increasing your returns relative to risk? How do you continue um, reducing your movement relative to the index? Mm. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. And, and it, is it clear the, the mechanisms for moving in that direction? Like it's a process you have internally of... Not really. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's very organic. Yeah. Um, I, I actually think... I think predefined processes are really, um, they, they kind of trap you. Um, yeah. it, it's very healthy. I think in a creative process to not have some preordained, like you want to know broadly where you're headed. Um, but if let's say like what, what we like to do is let's say there's three possibilities, three possible approaches to get to where we want to go. You have three researchers, each starts out on their own path and then when you start seeing which path is most probable to be successful, you pull the other researchers onto that path as well. And so you can both increase the amount of possibilities that you can test and also accelerate um, the amount of time it takes to complete a project. Mm. That makes sense. That's, that's a good answer. Uh, last thing I want to ask you, because I'm, I'm so curious to hear your, your thoughts on this. I think a lot about this phenomenon at large, um, and it certainly is most... T- typically applied in the financial sector, which is uh, Nassim Tlaib's famous idea of the black swan. And mm-hmm. if, he, if, if you kind of abstract out what, what that's getting at, it's, uh, it's highlighting this seemingly like human psychological bias or maybe, maybe cognitive, cognitive bias or flaw, which is that we, we look at other people as um, signals for what's true and mm-hmm. And we, we, we try to weight the people that have the most reputation, uh, and those maybe researchers or academics or doctors in the case of medicine. And, but they each look at each other as well, because mm-hmm. maybe there's not, maybe they're each not doing the actual work, like say climate change, for instance. How many people are going to the North Pole and drilling samples and looking mm-hmm. at it? You know, a fraction of the actual people in that whole domain, you know, the, mm-hmm. of the, all the, the, the climate sci- sci- scientists. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think if, if we, if we, if we l- put a lopsided amount of uh, trust in a tiny fraction of people who do the work, then, then we're, we're so dependent on, on them. And that, and that work can be a proxy for pricing something or making some prediction about the future. Um, mm-hmm. And I, see many scenarios throughout history where that's been wrong, where it's like 99% mm-hmm. of the world viewed something and was absolutely certain of it. And mm-hmm. that ended up not being true, whether it's um, Newtonian physics or the world being flat. Um, mm-hmm. and there's many examples of that. And I wonder which, what are we currently in a, where, where are we currently in one of those uh, holes? Like wh- where are we? Is it, and one of the areas where I, I don't know if this is it, but in the financial sector, I think could be like, are we collectively like, do, does the balance sheet of the country line up? Like, are we, or are we kind of, you know, when we issue 6 trillion in, in free money, um, are we kind of all as a herd running off a cliff and no <laughs> one is like checking the the books of the big guy, um, that's, that may be one, I don't feel like you have to go down that road, but if there's something that comes to mind, I'm so curious, mm-hmm. um, because I have oh, to believe something is, is there's gotta be some scenario where we look back in 50 years and we say, God, <laughs> everyone in 2021 was believing this and it turned out to be false. Yeah, man, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, I think the bias is that, so the whole, like, origin story of the black swan is that you know because there were only white swans around everyone assumes that there are no black swans but it turns out there is a black swan you just haven't seen it and that's like a cognitive error that we make all the time and and i think in the case that you're talking about is basically if we all collectively decide that um you know running huge deficits is okay then everyone is like okay fine i guess it's okay even though a couple years ago the consensus was that that's not the case. I think that there's a lot of things going on at the same time. Firstly, I think we need to acknowledge that absent the federal government, 2020 would have been really, really, really bad 
economically. Um, I mean, the, the idea that we could go through a pandemic, um, a what portion of the country was unemployed at one point, it was like 15% or so. And yet the average person could walk out with more money at the end of 2020 is a staggering reality. It's like this like incredible movement of capital from the government towards the private consumer that allows demand to stay up and allows for the economy to heal in a much quicker way. Um, and, and there's something noble about that because there are people, there are like human citizens that live their regular lives and depend on those paychecks and their lives will change in a real way because of those actions. So I, I think that kind of started this, this massive stimulus check, like passing that as something that's okay. Um, now I, I, th I think where you, where you run into a challenge is, okay, how long can we continue to do this? How long can we run deficits that exceed our growth rate? Um, because I, I think the, like academically it's, it's fairly proven that you can, this may be a somewhat controversial statement, but I, mm -hmm. I, I think academically you can run a deficit that's equivalent to your growth rate with no harm to the economy, pretty much in perpetuity. So, I mean, and you can think of it in like the context of, of a household, if a household was growing, even though governmental debt and households do not work the same way. And people like to think that they do, but for the sake of simplicity, let's just assume they work the same way. If, a household grew their income by 3% each year, they could afford to tack on an extra 3% of debt each year because they could afford those extra interest payments. And so that's the basic theory behind why you can run a deficit that's equivalent to your, um, to your growth rate each year. And, and it's important also to remember that we look at deficits and we get a nominal number. And when you look at growth rates, we get an adjusted for inflation number. So let's imagine that real growth rates, real GDP growth rates are 2%, but there's also a 2% inflation rate. So now you're at nominal growth rates of 4%. That means you should be able to run a deficit of 3 or 4% of GDP. Um, I'm not a macroeconomist, but I, I can't understand why that isn't true. Mm -hmm. um, so it seems to me to be true. Now, can you then extrapolate and say, therefore, it's okay to run 7 or 8% per year? That to me doesn't seem likely, especially if you are not investing in the country, but rather spending on projects that are more exciting at the moment. Um, it does seem like you can, you can run up quite a large national debt without causing a crisis. I mean, Japan, Japan's federal debt levels are something like 250% of GDP or like 105. So we can spend for quite a bit before, you know, we run into any real issues. Um, but it's, definitely not a healthy route. I, I think like we've learned over the past year that we can, that we can spend far more than we expected. Um, and, and that's a very important tool to have. Um, but it's not a great position as a government to be in because basically if we want to be able to spend what we need to spend to take care of the populace, you know, to have an $800 billion a year military and to run Medicare and social security and all of these programs, we really can't have interest rates go up beyond a certain number. And, and that penalizes lenders. And so, so now you end up in this like vicious cycle where you can't raise interest rates beyond a certain number unless inflation happens. And, and so things get like a little messy. Yeah. Um, well, I'm not sure you, like, a good answer to your question. Man, I, 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 I don't know if this is what you're implying, but I, I don't, I see it different. I mean, when I look at Japan in say 250% debt to GDP, uh, I don't see the story as being over. Like, yeah, I don't think you can you can draw any conclusion about that. And even the story with the U.S. certainly there would have been a lot more financial hardship in 2020 and 2021 if there hadn't been government intervention. But maybe it'll be worse ha given that they have. It's like maybe maybe it's uh, delaying the inevitable and making it worse. It's like you know you can you can pay the price today or you can pay the price times ten tomorrow kind of thing. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure I, I believe that. I, I think there's a few reasons why I, I would push back there. Um, you know, one is, what would you rather have? Like a maybe bad scenario in the future or something that will solve the present problem? Like mm. the premise of the argument is that it is possible that in the future we may have a really bad problem. Yeah, I'll, I'll 
hundred percent. It's possible in the future we may have a problem. But the fact is like right now we have like a really, really, really big problem and we, we have a way to solve that. Mm. So that, that would be my first push. And my second push is that the economy is like this web of connections it is driven by these assumptions of valuations that are the basis for debt and everything like that. And so if let's say you go through some deflationary spiral and you say, well, we're going to allow all of these people to, you know, be unemployed and have no capital to make purchases. Well, let's just use like a very simple isolated example. Let's say that in a, let's say 10% of people could no longer pay rent. Well, if 10% of people could no longer pay rent, then you'd have to devalue all of the real estate that catered to those people. But if, deval- if you devalued all of the real estate that catered to those people, now you have a massive hit to the valuations of those properties. And now the equity and debt holders of those properties take a very big haircut. And that spirals on and on because now the equity holders who previously were making X number of dollars per year make substantially less. They spend substantially less. The banks that previously had a certain amount of money on their balance sheet no longer have it on their balance sheet. And then it goes on and on and on. And and, and then you end up with like a great recession type, sorry, a mm-hmm. depression type phenomenon where um, the cycle, the deflationary spiral just doesn't end. It's it's not It's not the case that like, I think the argument that's typically made is maybe there was some healthy type of, you know, fire that should have burned up all the crap. And, and if you did that, then things would be healthier. But, but because everything is so interconnected, I don't think it really works like that. So while I agree that there is moral hazard present to bailing out a lot of things and to making debt very cheap, I don't know that the solution is to allow the edifice to burn to the ground. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, I agree. If, if there's ever a scenario where, you're saying something, an economy is burning to the ground, then, then implicit in that phrase, anything is better. So if there's, if there's anything better than burning <laughs> to the ground, so I'm, almost, I'm in Tahoe now, and we were talking about this pre-show, but the way forest fires yep. are interesting by analogy to the economy, because they go through boom and bust cycles. There's a lot of growth, mm-hmm. uh, the forest grows, and then it starts to wither, there's die, there's accumulated death or fuel mm-hmm. in the branches and the leaves. And then there's a forest fire that comes through. And mm-hmm. that is a, that's a, that's the natural process of things that has evolved mm-hmm. in this planet. And there's, mm-hmm. there's pine cones that need the heat from the fire to grow. Mm-hmm. And the forest has varying levels of trees. They have mm-hmm. small trees, medium and big trees. And mm-hmm. that, that, that uh, diversity of the forest prevents it from being completely annihilated in an mm-hmm. absolute inferno. And, mm-hmm the way that you mess up that system is that you prevent small fires from happening. And so Mm -hmm. we just had one here a few miles from where I am in South Lake Tahoe, where it just wiped out a hundred thousand acres. Now this Mm -hmm. is not a naturally occurring phenomenon. This is largely from the fact that we have prevented forest fires from happening. Mm -hmm. And so the Mm -hmm. fuel has accumulated so much, it wiped out all the small and medium sized trees. And -hmm. now you have just big trees and no trees. So mm-hmm. then you're going to have, now we have to go through and, and kind of interject more into this situation. And mm-hmm. I, I almost think that by analogy, the, the, the economy works beautifully if you don't mm-hmm. try to tweak it, because like you said, it's, it's made of an innumerable interwebs and, and complicated externalities you can't possibly think of. Mm-hmm. And if you have a, a, a naturally occurring forest fire in the economy, so yeah, some people lose their homes. They might have to go back and live with their parents. But mm-hmm. for the most part, we get through. And there's still mm-hmm. diversity of, of financial capabilities. The, the mechanics are still there. We're certainly not burned to the ground. Mm-hmm. I think the scenario where things burn to the ground is when we intervene in a way where that, that cycle of setback can't mm-hmm. happen. And then it just the, it's analogous to the bubble. The bubble gets mm-hmm. bigger because there hasn't been mm-hmm. a, a deflationary period. And mm-hmm. then it's like, poof, and then it, it just collapses. And and I, that that's how I just kind of conceptually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The debate really is whether, like, what, what categorizes this uh, implosion or explosion of the bubble? Like I think any time. So, like, I think we agree on this. Um, I, I would also agree that local recessions shouldn't be interfered with. Um, but whenever you have like a complete seizing up of credit markets where good businesses will die along with bad and the ripple effects are just catastrophic, 
I think 2008 is a great example of that. I think COVID is a great example of that. I don't think there's any option other than the government and the Federal Reserve to serve as like a backstop. Mm. Um, there, I mean, we've had plenty of recessions. Like I, I think, you mm. know, in, in the aftermath of, of the dot-com boom, where you had this like, you know, this, this burst and enormous amount of equity value lost and um, there was no national bailout of sorts. And, and I think that was healthy and that's corrective. Um, and, you know, I, I think similar things happen throughout history. Can't remember all the dates offhand, but, <laughs> but there is a, you know, there's a difference between like something that's more local where you have, you have an expansion of the credit supply and then a contraction of the credit supply. And, and that's healthy. The Federal Reserve raises rates and, you know, lending slows and, and so on and so forth. And then you go back into, and, and people that are over levered and that um, are, aren't actually, you know, producing value get kind of winnowed out and, and then the economy continues to grow. And, and of course there are like knock on effects where, you know, unemployment will go from 4% to 6% and, and that's healthy and that's fine. Um, but I think any situation where unemployment would go from 4% to 17%, mm-hmm. now you're talking about the type of upsetting that can co- bring about the collapse of society. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't have 20% of your country unemployed. It's, that's mm-hmm. like a really, really big problem. Now you have like a social phenomenon on your hands that, yeah, it, it's yeah. a fire that you don't really want to play with. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. There are other. It's not the forest analogy is is limited because trees don't protest and overthrow governments. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> there's always like like there's and and I, it's not an exact science. Like that's one of the reasons I think yeah. economics is so interesting because there's no. It's not like we know this is exactly what's going to happen. It's inextricably linked with human behavior, and so you know there's this like yin and yang, and there's this there's this. Uh, there's this beautiful word that George Soros has. Um, there's this reflexivity where, where both um, the economy influences human behavior, human behavior influences the economy. There's this like back and forth that doesn't exist in many other spheres. Um, and so it's a hard question to mm-hmm. answer, uh, mm-hmm. but, but I, I think it's, it's really cool. Where do you, where do you learn? Uh, who do you follow? Is there, is there resources, books or people that you tune into? that to, to learn some of this stuff? Um, I mean, I like to read pretty broadly. I, I, I like a lot of books that, um, explore the, the human component of finance. Mm. So William Bernstein has written a bunch of really great books, like delusion of crowds and, um, is it the finance cure or something. Um, Adam twos wrote a bunch of books about, um, he, he wrote a book called crash and he just wrote a book on, that was about the 2008 and kind of like the decade that followed. He does a really good job charting how, um, the rise of populism is linked to a lot of the instability that people felt in the aftermath of the financial crisis. Um, he also just wrote a book on COVID. I think mm. I literally received it this morning from Amazon nice. um, and, and about its like effects on, on the broader economy. Um, there's a lot of fantastic authors that, because I don't think you can get away from, the, the second you start thinking that it's just, statistics and it's just a bunch of numbers then you build collateralized debt instruments that blow up the entire world economies you start forgetting about the fact that there are humans at at the root of this yeah Um, it's really an organic system yeah we're we're not we're not a machine we're not a computer at large Mm -hmm. i mean it's you know it becomes increasingly difficult to produce predictions of the future that are reliable when you have more people involved Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah 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 Uh, Gershi, I really enjoyed this conversation, man. Congrats on all the progress at Magma and, um, you know, consider us an ally. If there's any way we could help at around the coin or I could let me know, but awesome conversation. Really appreciated. You really do have a knack for ideating and and thinking carefully about complex problems. So I enjoyed it. It was fun. Thanks, Mike. This was great. Yeah. It's, it's really nice to have a more, uh, free flowing narrative driven type podcast. I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, have a great one. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you.
Listen, there's a reason the ultra-wealthy have been investing in fine wine for centuries. Historically stable returns and a lack of volatility make it stand out compared to traditional assets, especially during a downturn. But now you can invest alongside with them with Vint. Vint is an SEC-qualified investment platform that offers shares of the most sought-after wines in the world. So join the thousands of investors diversifying with fine wine and spirits. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.